Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so Gorilla Gravity just celebrated their 10th anniversary, and we figured that meant it was a great time to have their co-founders, Will Montague and Matt Giraffa, back on the show to talk about all things Gorilla Gravity, starting from their early days of making aluminum DH bikes in Matt's garage to the development of their new revved thermoplastic carbon fiber frames that, as we've talked about quite a bit at Blister, are a major disruption to the mountain bike industry. And along the way, we get a bunch of more great stories about the history of Gorilla Gravity. We check in on their growth and what's next for the company and talk quite a bit about the supply chain headaches and navigating this brave new world of being a mountain bike company in the COVID era. But before we get into all that, we'd also love to extend an invitation to join us for the upcoming Blister Summit in our home of Mount Crested Butte this February. The snow is really piling up there, and the summit is going to have a ton of great ski brands, including Rosignol, Dina Star, Folsom, Forefront, Wonder Alpine, Wagner, Moment, and more. And we'll have demos of both Alpine and touring skis, and a whole bunch of great panel sessions with people from the ski industry talking about everything that they do and all the great stuff going on there. We'll have a link in the show notes with all the information about the summit, so check that out and come get pay us a visit this February. So with that, let's get right into my conversation with Will and Matt of Gorilla Gravity. Well, Will and Matt, great talking to you and thanks for coming on. How are you today and where are you today? Thanks for having us on. Uh, we are at our headquarters in Denver. Uh, so given that it's COVID, Matt and I are uh, in our respective offices uh, we do have an on-site mask mandate, so that way we uh, you don't have to listen to us try to talk through a mask. Yep. Yeah, doing well. Enjoying a warm, dry December on the mountain bike. Okay, right on. Yeah, we're having a, a very different kind of weird weather happening over here. It's been just crazy wet. I don't know. You guys probably saw some of what's been going on up in BC, especially with the massive flooding. And it's been a little more tame down here in Washington, but uh, still... I think we had literally the rainiest November on record ever, oh, so wow. that was fun. That's uh, that's probably a big record for you guys because it's already pretty rainy there. Yeah, right. That's saying something for up here. So where where are you? Uh, Seattle area. Well, yeah. Now it's snow, so I'm not sure how how much I need to send it over. Kind of looking forward to getting some more skiing in, but uh, looks like you're ready based on uh, based on your background there. Yeah, no, it's the the classic thing of storage for skis and some bikes and everything else spilling over into every little nook and cranny I can find for it. Way too much stuff crammed into a pretty small house over here, but uh, making it work. Well, (laughs) that little tangent aside, uh, I guess let's sort of take it from the top here. Gorilla Gravity just celebrated 10 years of being in operation. And why don't you tell us a little bit about how the company got started and what your respective roles are over there. Sure. So yeah, it all started back in 2009. Uh, We all got to know each other racing downhill. Uh, Matt and I teamed up uh, first with the angel fire final descent. I think it was, it was called the burner uh, when we first started and uh, I was working at a bike shop. Yeah. And I guess they got in some sort of trademark hot water with that. But, um, 
Yeah. So I was working at a bike shop. I uh, just moved out from, from Georgia, gotten into downhill pretty, uh, pretty, uh, aggressively. And, uh, Matt had, had done something similar. He was a customer at the bike shop and the, uh, the manager at the time, um, Matt walked in and said, Hey, I want to do this 12 hour downhill race. Do you know anyone who, uh, is crazy enough to, to try to embark on that? And it's not going to give up easy. And, uh, and he pointed in my direction. And, uh, so we did that and it was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a good time. 12 hours of uh, riding downhill as fast as you can. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty serious vetting process because <laughs> I was going to want to do this and I wasn't going to want to go down there and just, you know, half-ass it. It was like, I, I want to, you know, do well at this. So it's like, I, I want to find somebody that can do it, you know, ride for 12 hours at Angel Fire and not give up or get discouraged because they broke their shifter off or their tires flat or whatever. Their handlebars aren't straight. We're just going to pin it. You know, even if there's parts dangling off the bike. And so it was pretty quick that I was like, yeah, he's that guy. <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, over the years that we did that, there was many runs with flat tires and broken derailers. And, you know, I don't know we both broke shifter cables a few times over the years. So it turns out that's kind of a also a good test for should we start business together? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a quality trial by fire there, I suppose. Uh, and so the format of that's just how many laps can you bust out in 12 hours? Or is that about the gist of it? Yeah, it was awesome. It's fantastic. Uh, for those that have been to Angel Fire, uh, it's it's a really fun mountain. And if you haven't been there, go. But uh, yeah, it was just, they had a couple different routes taped. And you, there was basically the one that was fast. And then there was one or two that were slow. And it was essentially... If you wanted to do well, you were just lapping one of their downhill race courses, and it was how many laps could you do in 12 hours. So ride the chair, lift up, rip down, repeat. And so there's a timing like ankle bracelet or something. And so we, you know, we developed our own plan. Each person we'd ride for about an hour. So it was about three or four laps and then hand it off to the other person and just repeat that for 12 hours. And one thing that was really awesome is that they it was at the kind of like beginning of October. And so it would get dark at like 6.30 p.m. And it was 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. So you had two and a half hours of just darkness racing down Angel Fire. It was, it was just awesome. That sounds like a pretty good time. Are they still running that? No. Uh, they did it for five years. Uh, and that was it. Oh, that's too bad. Missed out on that. But uh, sounds like fun. It was a good time. Yeah, I bet. So from there, you guys forged this friendship and then somewhere along the line that turned into starting a bike company. What happened there? Well, we had lots of car time. So the 12 hour downhill race, uh, transitioned into just racing downhill all summer long, uh, and some, sometimes into the winter. So there was lots of car time, uh, talking about ideas and, you know, bike companies. And I had an idea for the, you know, rider direct was pretty, and pretty much in its nascency then, uh, you know, YT wasn't in the U S Canyon wasn't in the U S. Uh, and so we wanted to, we knew we wanted to be rider direct, be closer to the riders, be closer to the community, et cetera. And, uh, and then Matt was very much had some ideas on how to make the bikes, uh, better than where they are. I don't remember if, uh, no, no, if everyone listening remembers what downhill bikes were like in, in 2008, but they're, uh, they weren't where they are today. Yeah, so my idea came from that my background's in mechanical engineering, and I worked for 
Optimum G, which is a company that does uh, vehicle dynamics and race car engineering, and then was also at that time working at Adam Aircraft. We were manufacturing airplanes. And from the engineering side, it was, you know, I started racing mountain downhill bikes and it was, hey, these could be way better. The kinematics are just out in left field. This is not correct. The geometry is wacky. You don't need a 15-inch high bottom bracket height for downhill racing. They don't turn very well. So I'm looking at my bike and thinking about cutting shock tabs off and remounting things. And then it pretty just quickly evolved into maybe we should just make these. Right. And so then your first model was the GGDH DH race bike. And uh, if I have it right, you basically made the first couple prototypes in your garage, Matt. Yep. So w- when that started, were you kind of imagining it more as we're going to build a couple of the bikes that we want to ride and see how this goes? Maybe just as a, and maybe it won't go farther than being a project that's just building some bikes for ourselves. Or did you pretty much immediately think, okay, if we're going to do this, we're starting a company. We're going to start selling these. We're going to make this a big deal. Yeah, both of us right off the bat, there was just no point in just making a couple. I knew from being in college, I did Formula SAE and where we designed and built uh, small race cars. I knew it was going to be a ton of work to do that. So if making a couple was just never going to be worth it. So, and, you know, Will's thought process was the same of we're going to do this. We're going to do it as a company. Yeah, and so then I would imagine you pretty promptly outgrew your garage then. What were the kind of next steps in the growth like? So one of my buddies that I worked with at Optimum G um, had bought a house with a pretty sizable garage and he didn't park in there. He just had it. He just made it into a fab shop. He had a small CNC mill and some manual machinery in there, two bender, chop saws, all, all kinds of stuff. And uh, so we just rented space from him for a season before we got our first shred quarters on Bryant Street that we actually ended up being there for seven years. Yep. We found that place on Craigslist for uh, 1400 bucks a month, downtown Denver. (laughs) That's not that price anymore. Yeah, I would imagine not. And so what year would this have been at that point? In 2013? Yeah, 13, kind of fall 2013 is when we moved into that place. Right around then, too, would have been when you launched the Mega Trail. Is that right? Somewhere in that rough vicinity, maybe a little bit before that? So that winter was, uh, I was the only one there full time. And uh, it was kind of get this shop going and also design the Mega Trail and get it ready to launch. And so we launched it in the spring of 2014. Okay. And so that was your at that point, 150, 160 rear travel, if I remember right. Yep. Uh, Kind of all mountain or enduro bike, whatever terminology you prefer for such things. You had one, right? Yeah, you had one of the 26-inch versions. I sure did, yeah. At that point, it was you guys had a 26 and 650B wheel options for it. I had a 26-inch one for a while. Since sold it to a friend who's still riding it. Things going strong. That's awesome. I think I did break one set of chainstays on it, but it held up pretty well. Yeah, it was a cool bike. I mean, it, it was uh, fairly far ahead of its time in terms of geometry for that sort of a bike. And, you know, it's kind of short and steep looking <laughs> by modern standards now. Things have progressed a bit. But for its day, it was pretty impressive. So that was your second model with the GGDH still along there. And then the third would have been the trail pistol correct nope pedal head hardtail 
Oh, yeah, that's right. I for, okay, I got the order on those wrong. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I'm not the only person whose memory is a little faulty on these things then. Yeah. I uh, designed a lot of the tubing profiles in the back of a car on the way to Whistler. Uh, that's great. So tell us about that first gen pedal head. Yeah, so again, we're same as the Mega Trail. It was, well, you know, at the time, trail bikes were kind of decent at going up, but kind of sucked at going down compared to a downhill bike. And so we thought, well, what is the fundamental difference between a trail bike and a downhill bike on the way down? And it was simple. It was just geometry and suspension kinematics. So it was like, well, uh, <clears throat> maybe there's a way we can do both. And so that was where the idea of trail mode and gravity mode came from. And so we just made that as a, a swap that was pretty easy to do. And gravity mode was basically f- made to feel like just a small downhill bike. So then when we got to the pedal head, it was a similar question of, you know, we test ridden a bunch of hardtails and we're like, obviously they're all efficient at pedaling. Um, but, you know, even with no rear suspension, it should be better at going down than this. Uh, and so I was like, well, suspension's out of the question for the rear. So it came down to geometry on that. And, you know, we kind of shook things up with that too, because it was pretty slack uh, for a hardtail and it had a still fairly steep C-tube angle and it was fairly long. It was kind of actually one of the first bikes that we did. And I don't think a lot of people noticed as much. It was kind of the first of the steep C-tube angle long reach bikes that we did. Uh, but people really took notice when we did the trail pistol because we took it a step further. Uh, and then, you know, I think people just paid attention more to a full suspension 29er when it debuted. And, you know, with the numbers that honestly are still pretty modern that we debuted in 2016. And, you know, people thought we were crazy at the time of how in the world am I going to ride this thing with a 77 degree C-tube angle and a wheelbase on a medium that's more than 1200 millimeters. Oh, how the times have changed on that. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty normal sounding stuff now. But uh, yeah, it can take a little while for people to get used to change and things to start to feel normal. But turns out you were on to something there. Yep. The amount of times that we had to explain to people in the media, no, 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 it sounds crazy. Just ride the thing. And, you know, it climbs really well. It rips on the way down. So it felt like a big uphill battle at that point, just trying to explain, no, this actually works pretty well. And so when you're talking about people in the media with that, I mean, this is even after people had hopped on it or you just like send around a geometry chart and people are scratching their heads going, what is happening here? A bit of both. I think we encountered just some skepticism as I'm sure that, you know, anyone from the media probably would if something kind of came out of left field from a small player. Uh, And definitely there were some that wrote it pretty quickly. Like, Oh, this is really great. And then some at, you know, kind of from our perspective, it felt a little bit like they didn't really like it until someone bigger did the same thing two years later, and then it was awesome. But, uh, you know, obviously everybody's come around on, on that idea. Right. Yeah. It's certainly become the norm these days. And one thing I'd be curious about kind of in those earlier days when you had the Pedalhead and Mega Trail as the two full suspension trail, Enduro, whatever sort of bikes, what was the sales breakdown like between those two models i mean you're this was kind of a little on the earlier side for 
fairly aggressive 29er full suspension bikes. And um, how quickly did that take off or was the mega trail still kind of the predominant seller for a while? How'd that work out? Well, so the trail pistol debuted on a, a new platform and all the tubing was new and shaped better, looked a lot better. All the machine parts were, you know, a new gen. So there looked like there was a sizable difference in design. Uh, I mean, there was. <clears throat> and also a 29, kind of 120 travel aggressive was kind of a hot thing at that point. So the trail pistol, I think, recollection, really correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was definitely the larger seller kind of right out of the gate. Yeah, definitely uh, challenging my my mental recall on our uh, sales stats from from six years ago. But um, yeah, I mean, it's we've we've always been supply constrained, and so we, we sold as much as we could make of both of them, uh, essentially. Which doesn't mean that you know there's a uh, there's thousands of them out there or anything. But um, yeah, I mean, the trail pistol sold well. I mean, there was plenty of people who rode it and they got it, and you know, we we had a demo fleet out of our shop in denver and you know we traveled around and let people ride them and you know there was there was plenty of believers in the uh in the early days and you know the trail pistol was definitely popular it, as matt said you know the aesthetics were were far ahead of where the mega trail was when we launched it and, uh it kind of had like the the even newer school geometry than uh from where we we're at with the mega trail as well yeah and then so from there you guys also launched the well, there's the second gen Mega Trail with kind of more similar lines to the that first gen trail pistol and got the Smash, the longer travel 29er in the mix. And um and then also the Shred Dog, the shorter travel 27.5 bike. Uh had a whole family going after a couple more years in there. So those were all aluminum frames at that point. And then uh when was it that you launched the current generation of the revved thermoplastic carbon bikes. Uh, so we launched that in the beginning of 2019. Yeah, we launched it with with the trail pistol, right? Trail pistol or smash? Uh, so we launched it with the trail pistol. Actually, the four models that we full suspension models we had at the time, which were uh, trail pistol, smash, shred dog, and mega trail. The Narvana did not exist yet. That was one that we added a year later. Yeah, we had the, I think we had the trail pistol available first. So we launched them all together. Um, and, and then I think the shred dog was the, the, the last to become available on the market. But, uh, the models were all launched at the same time. It was sizes that were staggered. Yeah. And we talked about that whole project a whole lot more the last time you guys were on a couple of years ago. So, uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. People can check that episode out if they haven't heard it yet. But we go much deeper on the revved thermoplastic and all the development that went into that, which would be kind of an interesting companion episode to this. But I guess what I'd be sort of more curious to hear about, rather than rehashing all of that in super granular detail, would be just in those early days up, let's say before you got to launching the revved lineup as it exists more or less currently, what sort of felt like the really pivotal moments in the growth of the brand and getting the company up to the point where you were able to take on a project as ambitious as developing this whole new method for building carbon frames. Like kind of, were there any particular moments that stand out as sort of 
crossroads where you ha- made a decision that either did or didn't pan out and things the trajectory could have been wildly different had you gone a different direction or anything along those lines? But 2015 was a huge year for us. Um, so a bunch of things happened. We won a Chase small business grant that was a hundred grand, which was a huge amount of money for us at the time. Uh, and then we also won a city uh, business plan competition. Uh, so that was another 30 grand. And then uh, Bike Magazine gave us editor's choice for the Mega Trail. Uh, that year as well. So that was huge tailwinds going into, into 2016. And, you know, we were able to hire some more people and, uh, you know, increase capacity a bit. And, and that definitely was a, uh, a watershed year for us, uh, with all those things happening. That's a good answer. But Matt, anything else you'd add to that? Any other thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, 2018 was also a big one because, we had done a lot of the kind of pre-development for Revd, uh, but hadn't really made much yet. And so the beginning of that year was get this thing into production. And at the same time, it was also the first time that we had entered the beginning of a year with a full product line because it was the first time we had a short travel and a longer travel 29 and two 27 and a half full suspension bikes and a hardtail all at the same time. And we knew what we were doing. We were making them. Uh, We actually went into January with just boxes full of welded and heat-treated frames ready to go. So the lead times were shorter uh, and we were insourcing CNC machining. And then we dropped our prices $200 at that point and just got slammed with a tidal wave of orders. And it was nuts. And so at the same time, we were trying to just do that And then also it was, we've got to get this, you know, got to get revved, uh, implemented here. So that was, uh, that was a pretty pivotal year as well. Yeah. I can imagine that would have been an interesting moment to have been trying to roll out this new, totally new frame platform. And then also having your order volumes for the existing aluminum bikes go through the roof and sort of trying to juggle both of those things at the same time sounds like an adventure. Yeah. I think we did double the production in 18 of aluminum frames versus 2017 and had to get revved on board. It's a stressful year. <laughs> it sounds it. There was the, one, one of the good like rev development stories is we were trying to, to get the first ones to work and we would have to babysit these things uh, essentially in an oven, uh, while they, while they, we tried to figure out the fusing technology and, uh, we were having significant bladder failure issues. And so we would sit there and it would take hours to, to use this method. And so Matt, Ben and I would, would sit there at 10 o'clock at night and one person would draw the short straw and have to stay until 1 a.m. And then the bladder would fail at like 12. <laughs> and it took, and it took us like, a week to to make the prototypes at a time uh so it was like one week's worth of work that was you know come back the next day and rinse repeat start over try again that sounds like an adventure and just for people listening ben's your composites engineer i forget exactly what his title is right yep director of composites yeah that sounds not great um i I forget which one of you said this but in the last episode you were joking that uh, a really good way to ride your bike less is to start a bike company. It's accurate. 
And uh, yeah, sounds like that checks out there. Well, so from there, let's go into the current lineup. We sort of touched on a lot of the models that have, well, since been updated since those aluminum versions we were talking about. But why don't one of you run us through what you have as the full lineup right now and tell everybody what uh, what you have to offer. Sure. So we have uh, the pedal heads back, the, uh, the steel hardtail. Uh, so that's on a second gen now. Uh, so updated tubing. It has a modular dropout system now for geared and then also a single speed setup. It's uh, lighter and 20% more compliant than the old version. It's pretty awesome. Uh, <clears throat> and then on the revved modular frame platform, we've got the trail pistol, 120 millimeter travel 29er. We have the Smash 145 millimeter travel 29er, the Narvana's 160 millimeter travel 29er, and then we have two 27 and a half models, the Shred Dog, which is 130, 140 rear, and then the Mega Trail is 155, 165 travel. And uh, we've got reviews up of a lot of them. The Pedalhead, Smash, and Narvana are all currently on the site. We've reviewed the last generation trail pistol, and I'm working on a review of the updated one with the full carbon rear end. We'll have that up soon. Been a busy list last couple months over here on the testing front. So uh, that one's needing a little more time to get it wrapped up, but we're close. It would be interesting to talk about the modular frame platform that you guys have going on where for people who aren't familiar, basically the full suspension bikes all share a front triangle. And then by swapping out a combination of fork, headset cup, rear shock, seat stays you can convert them into the other models and uh it's a sort of neat solution that one lets people buy kind of sort of two separate bikes without having to go quite as far down the road of buying an entirely new frame obviously but i'd be curious to hear now that you've been running this for a couple of years how many of your customers do you think are actually buying multiple seat stay kits and converting bikes with any kind of regularity or most people kind of picking their spot and sticking with it. Yeah, we sell a fair number of seat stay kits for sure. Um, due to just COVID supply constraints, we didn't have them for the first six, eight months of the year. And since turning them back on, you know, I mean, we sell, we sell quite a few more than I was expecting to sell. Um, we've, we've sold about 50% more than I thought we would. Uh, upon turning them back on. So there's, you know, certainly not everybody is going to, to take advantage of, of that feature. Uh, but a lot of people do. Uh, and, you know, it, it allows them to sort of try something new. Uh, if they've been running the same, the same setup for, for two years, they can get a different seat stay kit and try longer travel, shorter travel, different wheel size, mullet setup, that sort of thing. Uh, and, then it uh, also allows them to to sort of tailor their bike if they, you know, say someone who lives lives in Washington but goes up to Whistler every so often, you can sort of have like a couple different setups for for very different terrain. Um, so you know, it's definitely going to be more for the the crowd that is comfortable working on their bike and like to tinker with it and that sort of thing. Um, but, but even still, you know, we have, we have, we still have a full range of, of rider types that we take advantage of it. Uh, so I would say that the, the traction on it has been exciting to see. Yeah. I was curious about that. I mean, we've had the same 
front triangle floating around blister for quite a while been in the hands of a couple different reviewers and all of those reviews that we've run of the current revved bikes have all been using the same front triangle and just doing the swaps of the seat stay kits and like you said i mean it's it's not something that you're going to do in in 10 minutes it's a, a little bit more involved than that once you've kind of learned the ins and outs of it it's a decent mechanic can probably do it in i don't know 45 minutes or something depending on exactly what you're swapping so it's not maybe something that people are going to do for every ride toggling back and forth a million times but it's not too hard either and um yeah just just curious to see how much people are really taking advantage of that and then how about you two which bikes are you spending the most time on these days if you are managing to ride with you know for, aforementioned jokes about not getting to ride much anymore aside yeah so the jokes there i mean i still ride quite more than will uh probably because we both have kids now so that makes a pretty major dent in uh available time but i just moved closer to the trails so i, I still ride quite a bit the narvana is my jam i just like to be able to smash whatever's in front of me yep i ride a uh we call it the pistola uh it's available on we have a secret menu on our website and it's a 150 front travel, 130 rear travel uh, on the trail pistol platform. So I got the new rev set up there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I find that that's great for pretty much everywhere in the front range. Uh, I like the shorter chain stays. My riding style is a little bit more kind of poppy and playful uh, compared to Matt's. He's a little more, a little more point and shoot. Um, and uh, wheels on the ground. I'm sort of the, the bonus line guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I've been on that for, you know, as you said, I've been on personally on the same front triangle since we launched it in 2019, uh, and I've just updated the, uh, the components around it. So, uh, that's mostly what I ride. I do, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted by going with a size two. So I ride a size three trail pistol. So you kind of get the long wheelbase, but the short chain stays, but I'm tempted by the, uh, going to a size two Narvana. So you get it's still kind of playful because you have a shorter reach and get some some more leverage on it, but uh, a little bit longer travel. So just uh, you know, keep it keep it funky fresh. And uh, Will, how tall are you to be kind of on that sizing brink? I guess I'm five nine. I say I'm five nine. I'm almost five nine. So I have a size three set up uh, as short as possible. So thirty two mil stem seat slam forward trail pistol. So a size three Narvana would be way too too big of a bike for uh for me yeah i'm uh a little over 511 i'm running size three long narvana yeah nice range of options to have for you guys on the subject of the new revved rear triangle for the trail pistol i'd love to hear some more about the development of that particularly because i know when you were talking about rolling out the revved front triangles a few years ago you were basically saying that this thermoplastic carbon technology is getting used in a lot of places, but the real challenge was making hollow shapes out of it. And the chainstay assembly on the new trail pistol in particular is a fairly complex shape. I'm guessing that was sort of an additional challenge to get manufacturing figured out on. That swing arm, that revved swing arm is the most complicated part that any of us have ever seen made out of carbon fiber reinforced thermoplastic. Because it's all one piece, 
and there's solid parts in there. There's hollow parts in there. There's uh, bladder exit ports. There's co-molded threaded inserts in there. And there's, you know, the cleva, clevis at the back, which is all tight tolerant stuff. It's everything about that is complex and not easy. Uh, and also, of course, has internal cable routing. So you got to throw one more challenge in there. Uh, yeah, that one, it was, a, it was a bear to get that thing into production for sure. It looked like it. I, but I pulled it out of the box. Was uh, impressed. Let's say. But going to some more detail on that, what were the hardest parts of making that work? More specifically, thermoplastics bladders are always a challenge. Uh, that's, I mean, always been something we've done a lot of trailblazing in. Uh, and we actually also filed another patent about how we do the hard points in that swing arm. So that was another challenge of it because it has carbon hard points. So the clevis that's solid carbon, they, where the pivot axle goes through, it's all solid carbon. There's no co-molded aluminum there. There's The only co-molded aluminum is a threaded insert for the uh, brake hose guide. So all of all those have been a challenge. I mean, we had to kind of figure out new ways of doing things to, to make those pieces fuse it all together with one structure in a way that's efficient with bladders that work with thermoplastics. Yeah, it's a kind of cool next step. And I would imagine that you're considering rolling out some more carbon rear ends for some of the other models somewhere down the line, if you're willing to tease such things. I would say uh, it's still it's still in the uh, category of considering it. Fair enough. Keeping the cards close to the chest, but uh, I get it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're always working on things um, for sure. There's some logical next steps in there. I would say that, you know, we're certainly committed to the, uh, the modular frame platform uh, in general and, you know, increasing product life span so you know one thing that we were sort of put off by by uh kind of the product life cycle of a, a lot of bikes on, on the market and that were on the market was you know they were intended to be short and we like the idea of having something that people can can own for a long time and you know stays relevant for a long time and is durable built to last on a sort of different note um obviously the last going on two years now have been a pretty wild time to be in the bike world as far as all of the supply chain shenanigans that have been going on are concerned. And I'd be curious to hear your takes on sort of how it's been going for you guys on that front. I mean, on one hand, you probably have the advantage of making frames in-house and not having to deal with shipping those over from Southeast Asia or wherever it might be. But at the same time, you know, raw materials even are a problem. And um, obviously the same for parts and components and kind of how has that all been going? On the frame manufacturing side, it's there's just been more of speed bumps, I would say. You know, we had uh, the carbon supply had a, a speed bump earlier in the year, and but we never actually fully stocked out for, I think, not more than like a day or something. Um, so on that side, yes, it's been... You know, there's been extra challenges that we've had to overcome, but nothing in, you know, that was incredibly difficult, definitely less difficult than dealing with shipping them from Asia. And all of a sudden now your frames are six months behind and the shipping costs just went from four grand a container to 24 grand or something like that. So we've been insulated from that on the frame side. Components, you know, we're in the boat with everybody else. So it's been, it's been a challenge. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's been a pretty interesting time. They'll definitely write case studies and textbooks about everything that's happening now, and it'll 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 fundamentally change how people think about their supply chain for you know many many years to come. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had to you know we we ran a fairly basic just in time component supply chain system uh, for you know the entirety of the company until two thousand. Uh, until COVID hit. And then things went from, you know, 30 days to 60 days to 90 days to 150 days to 300 days within a span of weeks, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, that, that, that required an adjustment period and uh, a lot of long weeks, long days to uh, try to get things on order. And, uh, and then, you know, we've had to get a lot more sophisticated with, with our supply chain planning. And, you know, we've bought, brought in, um, a new supply chain manager who's been instrumental in, you know, in increasing the visibility on forecasts and, you know, getting good data there. And cause I mean, we're having to place orders for 2023, 2024. It's sort of silly. Um, but, uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's classic bull up. I think it's going to be. An interesting time in, in in eight months. I think that there's a very high likelihood of uh, oversupply in the industry, but we'll see. Okay, that's interesting, and I've been wondering about that too, and don't have a very clear picture over from where I'm sitting. But you do think there's a decent chance that uh, there will have been a little bit of an overcorrection on trying to ramp up production on certain things, and pendulum might swing back the other way. Uh, yeah. I'd say gr greater than 50%. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we don't know how much of the, uh, the increase in demand is, is going to stick. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the industry grew by something crazy like 85% um, between 19 and 20. And there's got to be a, some sort of regression to the mean. I mean, you're going to be able to keep some of, some of that growth, but um, it's, that's not going to sustain. When people are placing orders like it, is going to be sustained. Not everybody, and you know, there's 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 plenty of nuance. Uh, but that means that there's going to be some folks holding holding hot potatoes by uh, in the form of lots of inventory by the end of the year. Yeah, and it also no one knows for sure. We're all looking into our crystal ball, but this could also be more so just on the supply side of things rather than actually at the retail side. For example everybody was kind of forced to start ordering supplies in a, you know, kind of panic ordering, make sure we have something. And so lead, that's why lead times are so crazy. But, you know, as, as the supply starts to catch up with those and, you know, then the companies are like, Hey, you ready to take this massive order of inventory? And the company is like, Oh, can we delay that? And all of a sudden maybe the pendulum swinging the other way is that the lead times just come back down on the uh like on the component side of things so that could be the pendulum swing so we'll, we'll see yeah there's also a lot of folks who have a you know warehouses full of uh, almost complete bikes except for saddles or chains or whatever the case may be uh and so now when you know more wheels become available they say oh actually we don't need all those wheels because we haven't moved all this other inventory yet so yeah no it's uh it went from a a pretty reliable uh, supply chain of components to uh, a brave new world. Yeah, it's been been an adventure, to put it lightly. I would be curious to hear some thoughts from you guys too on 
a bit another part of kind of the guerrilla gravity model is that you've got a large degree of ability to customize the builds that you're buying as a consumer of a guerrilla gravity frame on the site and so i can imagine that that on some level maybe made things a little bit easier on your you guys because you aren't trying to stock the exact sort of one build that you have and gives you a bit more flexibility to kind of swap parts around and have some different options available in sort of possibly in kind of smaller batches and what have you yeah i mean we've been able to it's it's a it's essentially a, a, a flexible build kit uh flexible bill of materials so if we need to swap out a, a bar or you know some grips or a chain or a drivetrain or we stock out of this or stock out of that it's it's pretty easy to to offer a replacement um to our customers and and in that setup. And, you know, earlier in the year, we had what we called our renegade build, which was, uh, you know, there was very low limited supply of a lot of different components. And it was like, here's the the parts that we feel good enough uh, that we, you know, that are, they're all solid and we can actually make a complete bike out of them. And here's, here's what you get. Maybe you haven't uh, ridden a lot of them, but, uh, but still good stuff. So, uh, so we're able to, to adjust with that. And, and, and yeah, you know, if we need to not offer one component on a race build and swap it out for something from a rally build, that's pretty, pretty straightforward for us to do. And, uh, yeah, so that's, it's definitely been, been helpful for us. Yeah. That ability, uh, definitely saved us, uh, from not having things to sell earlier in the year when, you know, like Will was saying, we, you'd have most of a build kit there, but no drivetrain or, you know, no breaks or something like that. And we were able to find other sources. And we also sold some bikes without wheels. So it was like, yeah, sure. It's a complete bike minus wheels. You know, here's a, uh, here's a link to, to some wheels on the internet. You can, these will work. So, you know, a little bit of getting creative and, uh, and staying nimble for sure. Yeah. I can imagine that helped a fair bit. And I guess apart from the obvious answer of just, whatever you can get your hands on have there been any parts or anything interesting that you've guys have been finding either that you are really psyched on yourselves or just things that you have been suddenly selling a whole lot more of and have been getting some really good feedback anything interesting on that front i'm always psyched on high-end suspension i think the uh current crop like anything fox grip 2 and uh latest rock shocks ultimate dampers and I, most of the time, my bike has a push shock on there. And those combos are always, I love that combo. I would, I would, uh, I would counter that and say, I'm psyched on the, uh, the mid-level suspension. I think it's, you know, been great that, that you can get something that performs really, really well. Um, and it doesn't have to be the, uh, the highest. End. And I think that, you know, that also plays into a lot of the, the kind of brand ethos as well. So certainly, you know. If you uh, if you're someone who who appreciates the last uh, you know ten to fifteen percent of performance, then then that's still out there for you. Um, but you know the select select plus level suspension these days is is really really good. Yeah, there's a better range of stuff out there than ever for sure. I would also agree with that. That yeah, base level stuff is way better than it used to be. Definitely, yeah, it's been a big uh, big step forward in a lot of ways and a lot of stuff and. I've also just been enjoying myself the uh, kind of new class of bigger, burlier single crown forks, 38 and Zeb, and actually just got an Olin's RXF 38 in to test yesterday. So uh, excited to start spending some time on that. But 
anything else on the, I don't know, drivetrain or brakes or anything else that you've been uh, checking out? I know you guys have been offering a couple of options for some parts that are uh, from not quite as big manufacturers, not SRAM Shimano on some of that front. Any feedback on any of that stuff? Seems like Stokes been high on the Magura brakes. Uh, I've been pretty curious to try those out. I know a few friends that run them and have liked them. Anything to add on that, Will? I'm uh, I'm sort of a meat and potatoes guy. I think uh, I think you know, going back to my my mid level comment, I, I I think you can buy like a really really good you know like rally level the our rally level man that's got like as far as performance goes, that's going to really suit the needs of ninety five percent of riders. You know, you can upgrade to to all the stuff on the the race build and um and you know you drop some weight and you get some bling. Uh, and you know, there's a, a couple clicks of performance, but I think it's just really cool how great the, uh, you know, sort of the, the middle segment of the, the components is, um, you know, all that stuff, it's reliable, it works well, it's, you know, competitive weight. So I think that's really cool, um, personally. So, you know, there's all the high end stuff that, that gets a lot of the, uh, the press, but I think, um, how well performing all the, uh, kind of like mid segments are the, the GXs and the XTs and that sort of thing is, I think it's cool. Because that wasn't the case several years ago. Yeah, for sure. And something that we've been talking about a bit at Blister is just you see people complaining about how expensive top of the line bikes have gotten. And, you know, that you can definitely go spend five figures on a mountain bike if you want to. But I think you guys are exactly right that the middle of the range stuff works so much better than it did not very long ago that the amount that you have to spend in order to get a bike that's really good even if it's not the blingiest thing imaginable is not crazy particularly i don't feel like that uh, number is really going up and has probably crept down in a lot of cases so that's been cool and yeah i think you're spot on with that well i should probably let you guys get going pretty soon here but before we wrap up we do like to ask our guests what their big idea is the podcast is called bikes and big ideas after all so what do you guys have to share for us I've got this big idea. I think that uh, mountain bike frames should be made out of this material called Revd. <laughs> a few years back when we were looking into it, of, hmm, I'm trying to solve a problem. This stuff sounds pretty ideal for mountain bikes. Uh, so, you know, that's the plug. The other one is, you know, I think uh, it's just environmentally and climate-based. We're all going to have to do our part to help continue enjoying this earth that we have for as long as we can. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for the, uh, the role the gorilla gravity and rev plays in, you know, the sort of the near shoring reshoring movement, uh, and reducing the footprint of, of supply chains. Uh, and you know, there's logistics benefits as we were talking about earlier, uh, as well. And so I think, I think not only the material, but sort of the sustainability impact that, uh, that, you know, we're, we're trying to, to help make, make a dent in, uh, in, in developing sort of the next wave of, of supply chain possibilities, uh, material possibilities, and, you know, sort of manufacturing evolution um, with, uh, between GG and Revd. Yeah, I've been talking to a lot of people who are kind of giving a bit of a rethink to their supply chains and looking at ways to, like you said, start reshoring and making things a bit closer to where they're going to be used. I think both with uh, carbon footprint issues in mind, but also just 
with how horrible shipping anything has gotten of late and how much harder that has made a lot of people's jobs that it's uh, leading to a pretty big reconsideration of how the world works on that front. And hopefully that continues. And it wouldn't be hard to imagine that these supply chain problems that we're seeing die down like you were perhaps predicting that they might. And hopefully that does come to pass. But I guess my thought here is that I just do want to see the momentum that is built behind all of that kind of thinking to continue, even if uh, the headaches behind it abate a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's more to the, you know, having a more durable material than, you know, the right product mindset mindset. So increasing product lifespan, uh, figuring out how to, to recycle it end of life, how to, you know, make sure that, you know, you're reducing waste throughout the process, et cetera. So, I mean, there's, we're looking at a, a lot of opportunity and I think, you know, it's great to see, um, a lot of people beginning to, to, to think about the impacts there. Uh, and so just trying to, to actually put all those thoughts into, into action over the, uh, the next few years. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for the time and for coming on and, uh, been a great chat and hopefully can manage to make it out to Denver to get some riding in with you guys one of these days. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks for having us on. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Okay, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And I want to say thanks to Will and Matt for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.